By far the most frequent title that Jesus uses to refer to himself is the Son of Man. But what does this title actually mean? Today we'll examine the complex identity revealed by this title and see what it has to tell us about the nature of Christ. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander. I'm your host. As always, thanks so much for being here with me today. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through Him. So if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus yet, I invite you to do so, and hopefully this series, if you've been tuning in, has helped you get a little closer, whether you're a believer or if you're on the fence, or maybe you're not a believer, maybe you're Muslim, maybe you're part of a different religion altogether, and so you're wondering about Jesus, you're wondering about the Trinity, and that was my goal with this series, is really to not only elucidate the character of Christ, but really to show you that the Bible teaches that he is God. God made flesh. And of course, the Christian God is not just one person, but three persons in one being. And that's been something that we've been exploring for the last several episodes in this series. So if you're just tuning in, make sure you go check out some of those previous episodes, especially, like I said, recently we looked at some very important ones, the, the testimony of Christ. What did Jesus say? We looked at what Christ himself said about himself, because a lot of people say that Jesus never claimed to be God, or, you know, show me in the Bible where Jesus says, I am God, worship me, which is a very common uh, Muslim apologist argument. But really, we looked at how the Bible not only proves that Jesus is God, but Jesus himself said he was God, the God of the Old Testament, and the apostles, the people who followed Jesus, what they wrote about him, that they believed he was God, unquestioningly so, if you look at the original language. So we looked at all these things previously, and last week we looked at the title, The Son of God. So Jesus uses a lot of different titles, but specifically, the the two most popular ones are The Son of God and The Son of Man. And some people have argued that The Son of God is somehow proof that Jesus is different ontologically, meaning the nature of his being is different than the Father. So it somehow says that, you know, he has a different type of divinity, or maybe he was created, like the Mormons believe. And so ultimately, we looked at that title, very important title, and what the what the context of that title really is, and how it's actually the opposite, how it's, the, how it's proof that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. So it's very, very fascinating episode, very fascinating set of episodes in the last couple weeks. We looked at all these different things, so make sure you go check those out. We also looked at things like the firstborn as a title of preeminence. That's another title that he's given, especially by people who write about him, like Paul. You know, the firstborn doesn't mean created. It means a title of preeminence. We looked at another title, uh, the only begotten, the only begotten son of God. What does that mean? Does that mean he was created at some point? Is, is he God's only son, like we have only children? Or does it mean something else? And we looked at how it has to do with appointment, how the author of Hebrews related Psalm 2 to an appointment, not creation. Very, very interesting. We looked at types and shadows, like the sons of God, how we are sons of God when we're adopted, and how they these are shadows of the ultimate, the son of God. Jesus, remember, is called the Son of God, not a Son of God. Very, very important. 
And of course, all the other things we talked about, like Jesus's own testimony, the apostles' own testimony. So ultimately, what do you do with all that? Well, Jesus is God, very much so. He's the second person in the Trinity. We've looked at the Holy Spirit being a person. We looked at the Father being a person very early on in the series. And so now we come to this title, the Son of Man, which off face value, if you have no context, if you've maybe never even read the Bible, you don't know what that means, you would hear that and say, hmm, that sounds like a like a human type of title. It's like a human being. And yet we know that Jesus is God. And so this is now the journey ahead of us today, which is a very interesting title. This title, like I said at the beginning, is the title that Jesus uses the most to refer to himself. And so it behooves us to really understand this title. What does it mean? Why does Jesus use the title so much to refer to himself? What does it mean? What are the implications? And you know, what does the Bible have to say? So that's our topic today. We have a lot of interesting things to talk about. But these will reveal the complexities of Jesus's identity. And of course, true biblical Christianity affirms that Jesus has two natures, a human nature and a God nature. And those two are seamlessly together, interwoven in the incarnation. Of course, that's a mystery to us. How how is that possible that the infinite, limitless God could take on human form, and that's the mystery of the incarnation. But nevertheless, that's what the Bible teaches. And so we have to study these things so that we can marvel at the Lord, marvel at the great work that he's done through Jesus Christ, through the plan of salvation, through the gospel, through the atonement, the incarnation. All these things are just so profound to think about, and they really help us strengthen ourselves during times of suffering, times of challenge, when we're too focused on our own problems, on our own selves, times of distraction, and times of deception. So, the Son of Man. That's the most frequent title that Jesus used to refer to himself. Like I said, it's used about 80 times, give or take, in the New Testament. And as a title, it's also used in the Old Testament for various things. We're going to look at that. But the, the title, the interesting thing about this title, and we're going to break each one of these down, the interesting thing about this title is that it has specific qualities related to Jesus and his mission. And those qualities are humanity, as in a humble servant, you know, a humble human being, a propitiation for sin, meaning he's the payment. The Son of Man refers to, it's used in the context of propitiation. He's the payment for our debts, for our sins. And last but not least, a conquering deity, and king. So there are messianic, godlike, king-like, conquering qualities to this title. All three of these, which seem kind of opposite from each other, really, if you think about it, especially the conquering king and deity with like propitiation for sin and humble servant. All these things seem that they don't fit, but yet they're seamlessly interwoven in Christ, which is so fascinating. And so if we start with the humble servant, the human aspect of this title, we can look at a lot of places in the Old Testament. And I'm going to skip around here a little bit, but we're going to start with Psalm 8. That's verses 4 through 6. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. It's a very interesting set of verses here 
Because it's not talking about Adam or mankind in general, because we're not crowned with glory and honor. And this, this psalm, the, the, these couple verses in Psalm 8, is quoted in Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 9. And this is talking about the founder of salvation, who, of course, is Jesus Christ. This is Hebrews 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So a lot going on in these verses. And of course, Hebrews is all about typology. If you know what that is, typology is the shadow. Um, it's the study of shadows and types in the Old Testament, how they are fulfilled in the New Testament, very much so in Hebrews. And you notice that, that there are many things going on here. I, I only read a few verses, but there is sort of the, the humble propitiatory aspect of the Son of Man, that he was he had to taste death for everybody, right? That's propitiation in nature. He's very humble, and yet he's crowned with glory and honor and given dominion over all things. So you have this, this duality of, of seemingly opposite things that are very intimately interwoven in one person, and that person is Jesus. Now today, Jews, like Jews who don't believe in the Gospels, Judaism, they still believe in two messiahs because of this very issue, right? And it, it is an issue if you don't have the revelation of the truth, and you don't believe that Jesus Christ was who he said he was, that he resurrected, that, he, that God came in the flesh, you really stumble over how the Bible presents these seemingly contradictory realities of the Messiah. So, of course, today's Jews, who have drifted very much away from the Hebrew Scriptures and the Hebrew you know, religion that was in the Levitical religion, Judaism is very different. And one thing that is very different about it is their understanding of the Messiah, they don't even believe in a supernatural Messiah anymore, which was not the case 2,000 years ago. People very much expected a godlike Messiah. And we're going to look at that in several places. But nonetheless, people, the Jews today believe more in a political Messiah. Anybody could be the Messiah. It's more of a political timing type of thing. And they believe in two Messiahs, the Ben Joseph and the Ben David. Ben Joseph is the suffering servant, and the Ben David is the conquering king. And again, there's nothing supernatural about these messiahs. They're just people. So it's a very, very different understanding. It's really, it's an inversion of the truth because these two realities are in Christ. But if you stumble over the first one, which is the suffering servant, which the Jews still stumble over today, just like they did 2,000 years ago, how can our Messiah be a suffering servant? You know, it's a, it's a national pride issue. You know, it's not realizing, first and foremost, that the suffering servant is the propitiation for your sins. You have to have a suffering servant to suffer on your behalf because you're guilty and the only way to pay for your guilt is through your life. But if you don't realize that because you're focused on works-based righteousness, which Judaism is, that's another way they got away from the Old Testament because the Old Testament was a sacrificial religion. People were made right by sacrifices, not by good works. God doesn't accept your good works. He needs a sacrifice. You need a blood sacrifice to approach God. 
And then, of course, yeah, you know, you're expected to behave, but good behavior doesn't get you in the presence of God. You always needed a sacrifice. And, of course, with the temple being destroyed in 70 AD and rabbinical Judaism taking over with synagogues and works-based righteousness, you have a totally different religion than what the Jews practiced 2,000 years ago. Of course, these things were already in momentum with the Pharisees, but, you know, that's besides the point. So the point is this, these, these texts that we're looking at, they testify to this duality within the same person. And so if we look at some other, other texts where there's this humble son of man type of servant being portrayed. And again, Jesus fulfilled that. He used that title. And so every time we look back in the Old Testament, because he said, the scriptures testify of me. I believe that's in John 5, but they bear witness to him. And so every time we look back in the Old Testament now, now that Jesus has come and he's revealed all these things, we look back in the Old Testament, like we're going to look at Job and Numbers in just a second, where we see the title, Son of Man. And, and, and with the context it's in, we can understand it now from a different perspective. These are shadows of the future. So in Numbers 23, 19, it says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it, or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? Now, son of man here is associated with humanness, and it's contrasted with God. It's not necessarily a picture of the son of man, meaning Jesus Christ, and how, you know, like Jesus would change his mind on stuff. No, that's not what it's talking about. It's it's co- compare and contrast is throughout the Bible. And so you have to understand that not everything applies all the time. But this is painting this picture of duality between, well, God is a certain way. There's a God nature. God does not change his mind. He doesn't vacillate. He doesn't make mistakes. He's perfect. He's not like a son of man. Remember, a, not the son of man. So he's not like a son of man that he should change his mind. So again, you have human nature and divine nature trying to get you to understand first very early on in the Bible that there's this difference. How, you know, how much higher are my, are my ways than your ways? As the sky is from the earth, that's how high my ways are you from your ways. And so it's, it's trying to understand that, wow, these things are so different. And then suddenly when Jesus arrives and he says, I'm the son of man, but he's also God, and he makes claims to godhood, you have to now reconcile these drastically opposite things in one person. It's it's really profound the way God sets that up for us to really wrestle with it and chew on it. But in Job 25, verse 6, you have another one. And Job says, let's go from verse 5, actually, Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? Now, this is actually, again, if you if you don't maybe look at the original language or you don't understand the value of typology, you look at a verse like this at first and you it's easy to gloss over this and to not, you know, really pay it any mind because, okay, well, obviously this is making a comparison between God and man again, how man is just, you know, nothing, he's a maggot, the son of man who is a worm. But there's so much more to this, and it's really, truly profound, because the word for worm is, is parallel to, to another place in Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm. Now, there's a whole deep dive on this that I plan on doing, 
But there's there's so much in Psalm 20. Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Christ, approximately. And it is, if you could read one thing that was prophesying the advent of Jesus, Psalm 22 would probably be it. I mean, there's so much about Jesus's life there, and it's really, truly profound. But look at verse six in Psalm 22. It says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. And we know that Christ quoted this Psalm right when he was dying on the cross, because he says at the very beginning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? So in, tra- in traditional Jewish culture, when somebody would want to bring a psalm to your mind, they would just say like the first verse or one of the verses there. So you, people would read the scriptures all the time and they would know their scriptures. And so when somebody says, like when Jesus was dying on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not saying, oh my gosh, the father has separated himself from me or all these wild theories that people come up with. He's actually teaching even while he's dying, his last breaths, he's literally still teaching people and revealing who he is. Because these, this is the first line of Psalm 22. And if you go to Psalm 22, it's this whole story of the suffering servant. And at the end, the suffering servant is redeemed and resurrected. And so it, again, it's just, it's really profound. But in verse six, like I said, you could do a whole deep study on this, and I do intend on doing one in the future, but verse six says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. Now the word for worm here is, is the thing in question. And if we look it up, it's uh, tola. The word is tola or toloth. Very, very interesting worm because this is a different kind of worm than normal. So we're going to look at a nice little article on this because it's it's actually quite interesting. And this article is titled, How is Jesus Like a Worm? What's the Crimson or Scarlet Worm? A Remez in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is known as one of the three shepherd psalms. This psalm is also prophetic because it gives a picture of the cross from the perspective of, the, of our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. In great detail, this psalm describes the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus that would take place a thousand years after the psalm was penned by David. On the cross, Jesus quoted Psalm 22 when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And for those standing at the foot of the cross, his words would have evoked the words of the psalm in their minds. Had they remembered David's words, they would have seen and understood what was happening before their eyes, and they could have remembered the promise of hope in this psalm's closing words. Very fascinating. A remez in Psalm 22. In Jewish hermeneutics, interpretation of scripture, a remez is a hidden message or a deep meaning. It's said to be a treasure that is found below the surface or behind the words. There's an interesting remez in Psalm 22, verse 6. This psalm is prophetic of the cross of Jesus. And in verse 6, it says, But I am a worm and no man. Jesus was certainly a man on the cross. So what did the psalmist mean when he wrote, I am a worm? The worm in Psalm 22, 6. The common Hebrew word for worm is rimah, and it is defined as maggot or worm. However, in Psalm 22, verse 6, the word for worm is tola or tolaath. The Hebrew word tola or tolath is used 43 times in the Old Testament. Mostly as a color, 
but sometimes in reference to a man, like in Job. So again, when we read it in Job, previously in, in Job 25 or 6, it's the same word as in Psalm 22, which is talking about Jesus. And so you can link, this is what's fun about these things, is to link, okay, this one's related to this, and it's actually in in this chain of types and shadows and pictures that point to Christ. It's really profound how God, yeah, I think he put these little, you know, golden nuggets throughout the Bible for us to hunt and to make connections through because it's truly profound what this is talking about. So let's move on. Strong's Dictionary defines this word as a maggot or the crimson grub, but used only in this connection for the color from it and clothed, clothes dyed therewith. Scarlet worm. So the word tolaath or tola in Psalm 22 verse 60 notes not only a worm, but also identifies it as a crimson or scarlet worm common to the Middle East and predominantly in Israel. It should be noted that the colors crimson and scarlet are very deep, blackish red, which is the color of blood. And in this crimson word, we, crimson worm, we find hidden meaning of biblical significance. The life cycle of the crimson worm. This is what I want to read. The crimson worm, scientific name Cacos ilicis or Kermes ilicis, looks more like a grub than a worm. In the life cycle, this worm is where the remez is found, meaning the secret treasure, and it points to the work of Jesus on the cross. When the female crimson worm is ready to lay her eggs, which happens only once in her life, she climbs up a tree or a fence and attaches herself to it. Isn't that interesting? With her body attached to the wooden tree, a hard crimson shell forms. It is a shell so hard and so secured to the wood that it can only be removed by tearing apart the body, which would kill the worm. It's fascinating stuff. The female worm lays her eggs under her body under the protective shell. When the larvae hatch, they remain under the mother's protective shell so the baby worms can feed on the living body of the mother worm for three days. I mean, can you believe this? It's just so fascinating. After three days, the worm, the mother worm dies and her body excretes a crimson or scarlet dye that stains the wood to which she is attached and her baby worms. The baby worms remain crimson colored for their entire lives. Thereby, they are identified as crimson worms. On day four, the tail of the mother worm pulls up into her head, forming a heart-shaped body that is no longer crimson, but is turned into a snow-white wax that looks like a patch of wool on the tree or on the fence. It then begins to flake off and drop to the ground, looking like snow. So white is righteousness. And of course, this uh, article quotes Isaiah 118. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they, shall, though they be red like crimson, tola'ath, this is the same word for that uh, uh, worm, they shall be as wool. The body of the tola'ath. In biblical times, the red dye excreted from the crimson worm was used in the high priest's robe and probably for red dye used on ram skins to create the covering of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Of course, we've talked about this quite a bit in the past too, how the tabernacle is a picture of Christ, a picture of salvation. Use of this red dye continues today. While still red and attached to the tree, the worm's body and shell are scraped off and used to make what is called royal red dye. The waxy material is used to make high-quality shellac, used in the Middle East as a wood preserver. And the remains of the crimson worm are also used in medicines that help regulate the human heart. Gosh, I mean, there's just, 
there's just so many points to talk about on this, but I wanted to read it to you if you've never heard of this crimson worm before. It's it's a whole thing. I mean, it's, there's so many parallels to Christ. But the thing that really just sticks out to me is how the babies basically eat the body of the mother worm, and then when she dies, she covers them in her blood, basically in her red dye, and they're covered. They're under the blood for the rest of their lives. Isn't that just so so fascinating? And then the body turns into a heart shape, love, and it turns from red to white, from sin to righteousness. I mean, it's, it is so profound that this word is the word that's being used in Psalm 22 when it's talking about Jesus' crucifixion on a tree. And so all of this moves us into the next quality of the, of the Son of Man, which is propitiatory or propitiation for sin. A propitiation means just a fancy word for meaning in the place of. So a, so a propitiation, somebody dying in your place, is that they're taking the bullet for you, basically, and that is imputed as righteousness to you. Somebody's paying your debt, and that's being legally transferred over to you. It's a propitiation. And of course, the Hebrew religion was a propitiatory religion, meaning you always had to have a sacrifice to cover you. All the way from, you know, even in fact, if you look at the Old Testament, there was always a sacrifice. All the way from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, God sacrificed an animal to cover them. And that's been the case ever since. Christianity is a sacrificial religion in the sense that, or a sacrificial faith, that we have a sacrifice. Now, of course, our sacrifice is one and done. It's, you know, infinitely valuable. So there's no more need for sacrifices. But nonetheless, we have a sacrifice that we are relying on. It's the sacrifice of Christ. You cannot approach God without a blood sacrifice. That's why the Son of Man is a propitiation for sin. And we look out in a couple of different places, but when Ezekiel, now Ezekiel, the word Son of Man is used in the Old Testament for a lot of people, but especially for Ezekiel, out of all the prophets, I think that he was called the Son of Man more than, or Son of Man, not the Son of Man, but he was called Son of Man more than any other, other of the prophets. So again, that's another picture of Christ, because Christ was pictured in the prophets, pictured in the high priest, pictured in the kings. He's our king, our prophet, and our high priest. So all of those pictures are supposed to point to Christ. But Ezekiel especially, because he is called son of man quite a bit of times, there's some interesting aspects to Ezekiel. We find in Ezekiel 4, verse 1 through 4, this, this symbolization of judgment that God does. And again, God uses prophets to act out the judgment that he's about to bring. And this is an example, because we talked about this with Abraham and the only begotten son, how Isaac was told, you know, go and sacrifice your only son, the one that you love. Of course, Isaac wasn't Abraham's only son at the time. He had Ishmael. So it wasn't talking about that. And and we looked at how Genesis uh, earlier, I forget, I think it's Genesis 20, somewhere around there, but God calls Abraham a prophet, So if you understand what I'm about to read to you in Ezekiel, that God is using prophets to act out prophecy and then give it, give that life, then that was a prophecy of the Messiah. It wasn't that Isaac was the only son that Abraham had, but he's the one that was appointed, the only begotten. He was the one that was appointed to be the child of the promise, 
See how this works? And so that was a physical type for the spiritual reality through Christ, that the Son, the Son of God would be incarnate and be sacrificed. But Ezekiel 4, verses 1 through 4, this is the siege of Jerusalem symbolized. And God says, And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you, and engrave it on a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it, and build a siege wall against it, and cast up a mound against it, and set camps also against it, and plant battering ramps against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and set your face toward it. And let it be in the, the state of siege and press the siege against it. This is the sign for the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years their punishment. So long shall you bear their punishment of Israel of the house of Israel. Now, couple, just a quick note here. If you haven't seen my end time series, I strongly recommend and suggest and lovingly encourage you to go and watch that series so you understand the truth about the end times. Why did I highlight verse five? Because God is using days as symbols for years in Bible prophecy. That is not always the case, but there's most of the time it is. Like, for example, when he gives Abraham the prophecy of uh, them being sojourners in, in Egypt for 400 years, that's a literal prophecy. Those are years. But in these cases, when he's saying days, and very specifically matching them to years, they're prophetic days. Now, why do I mention this? Because many people are deceived about the end times because they've bought into futurist eschatology, which was created by the beast to hide its identity, which reads all these time periods in Revelation and Daniel as literal days. But if you read them as years, you see very, very different things. And so I hope you you can know the truth about that because many people are deceived. But this is one such example that the day to your principle is not made up. It's something that God uses in prophecy. But nonetheless, the important thing I want to highlight with Ezekiel is note that he's called son of man. Again, that's something that he's called quite a lot. He's not called the son of man. He's just called son of man. And he's a prophet and he's also supposed to bear their punishment. And there are many other scenes like this, but this is just one of them where he's, he has to bear their punishment. He's the, he's the prophet that's prophesying and also in a propitiatory type of intercessory role. Now, bearing the punishment applies also to the high priest. And really, this is the interesting parallel here, because in Leviticus 10, verse 17, it says, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? And this is... Uh, this is about the high priest. Numbers 18, verse 1, duties of priests and Levites. So the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons and your father's house will with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. So again, the, the Levitical religion of the Hebrews was a religion of sacrificial atonement by propitiation accepted through faith. <laughs> it's always been that. Of course, through Christianity, we have the perfection of that. So Judaism today, with its workspace righteousness, has no connection to the original Hebrew religion. The continuation of Hebrewism 
and the Hebrew scriptures is Christianity. Judaism is an offshoot of the Pharisee, Pharisaic religion that was around during Christ's time and existed because many people didn't convert to Christianity. The rebels who continued to walk in the ways of the Pharisees developed Judaism. But very clearly so, in Numbers, in other places, Leviticus, the high priest is bearing iniquity. He's, he's the one that's bearing this, the punishment and atoning for the people. And of course, that's a picture of Christ. Because again, when you look in Hebrews, especially, there's, there's all this stuff about how the high priest, we have the perfect high priest now, and he, he, he offered the perfect sacrifice and so on. But Ezekiel had to do many humbling things. And son of man being appropriated to, to Ezekiel, especially as a prophet, as an intercessor type, as somebody who's kind of a priestly type and bearing the punishment, that paints a picture of Christ. Because again, Christ is the son of man. He's the one that all these pictures of son of man point to. We looked at son of man as a worm. That has propitiatory aspects too, but it's very humble, Right. We looked at the human aspects of it, the humble servant. We looked at Ezekiel just now and how, you know, he, he's, he's many dimensions. Even within Ezekiel, who was a real person, he had the prophet dimension. He had like this humble, lowly servant. Uh, he had to basically act out certain things and bear punishment in a priestly type of sense. So very, very humbling and propitiatory and servant type qualities. Now we know in Mark 10 verse 45, and other parallel texts, that Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you have humble servant, and then you also have propitiation, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is so important, because again, it identifies who Christ is. Christ is the intersection of, of these vastly different realities, which is just so so phenomenally fascinating to meditate on. The reality of the humble servant, who there was nothing about him that was desirable, that's what the Bible says, you know, and then you have the conquering Messiah and King, which we're going to talk about right now. So deity, savior, and conqueror. This is pretty much the third aspect of the Son of Man, and it's pretty profound because there's a lot to talk about this. Now, we're going to start in Psalm 80 and read a little bit from there and see how there's these types for the Messiah and how the Son of Man is introduced. But in this time, it's not a humble servant, but really is kind of a divine type of figure. So this is Psalm 80, verses 8 through 17. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all all of that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine. The stock that your hand, that your right hand planted and for the son of whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. 
They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Now, this is, this is so interesting because up until verse 17, the last verse that I just read, what is this talking about? Well, obviously the vine is Israel and it's recounting how God brought them out of you know, uh, Egypt through the Exodus, gave them the promised land, they prospered. And then obviously, if you've read the Bible, they apostatized, they were judged. Now people are, you know, the psalm is lamenting the apostasy of Israel and obviously the judgment because now they're just a byword and they're being consumed where there once was a lot of glory. And as usual in, in psalms, you know, there's always kind of a request of God most of the time in, in Psalms and, and usually for God to turn back and, and help us in some way. And so in this case, look look upon us with favor again, help us, you know, out of this mess. And so what's the solution? Well, the solution, if you get to verse 17 is, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Now, this is talking about the Messiah. Of course, we know that Psalm 2, Psalm 110, all these other messianic psalms, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool. If Again, if you watch my end time series, we have a whole episode on, is Jesus king now or in the future? And of course, the answer is now. He's king right now because every verse about him and his authority is talking about how he's seated at the right hand of God, which is, it's a position of power. The right hand doesn't mean physically to the right of God the Father. It's it's a it's an idea of power, and all authority has been given to him. So again, this is talking about the Son of Man, but now it's in a like the Son of Man is the solution. Let your hand be on the Son of Man. Let we're waiting for the Son of Man to come and deliver us from this situation. And again, compare this to Psalm one ten, where he says, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." All these things are tying together to intersect into a person that's coming to save humanity. Of course, in this case, it was limited to Israel in their minds. But through the New Testament, we have spiritual Israel, which is the church. But nonetheless, it was the Son of Man, and it was a type of Messiah. And Jesus said that he is the true vine, right? And so you have this now dichotomy, or I should say not really dichotomy, but a picture Israel is the vine being spoken of in in Psalm 80. But that vine kind of was a little bit rotten, right? So, of course, that was a picture of the true vine, which is Jesus, which is the Son of Man, which is the one that God has chosen, the only begotten, the one that's at the right hand. Do you see all these things intersect? It's just, it's so phenomenally interesting. But now we have Daniel 7. And Daniel 7 is a, a huge chapter to consider the Son of Man, because Daniel gets a vision of the Son of Man, and it's it's obviously a divine person that he's looking at and seeing. And the Jews struggled with this, because they had a, a two powers in heaven theory. And, they, you know, of course, with the angel of the Lord, and Yahweh, and the angel of Yahweh, that was the whole thing. We'll talk about that in a future episode. In Daniel 7, and for a while, Daniel was a forbidden book by the rabbis to read. Because again, you know, if you if you read Daniel, especially Daniel 7, you realize that Jesus is the Messiah. Daniel's 70-week prophecy in Daniel 9, Daniel's vision of uh, the Son of Man, which we're going to take a look at in just a second, 
Very, very interesting. But the vision of the Son of Man, let's take a look at it. Specifically, this is in verse uh, 13 through 14. I want to focus on a very specific word. This is, the Son of Man has given dominion. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So obviously, this is the Father. This is God Almighty. And yet, there is a person who is riding on the clouds, coming to him and getting all authority. So that's interesting. Verse 14, And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all peoples and nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall now pass away, and his kingdom one shall not be destroyed. Now, this is very, very interesting, because the word here for serve, let's see if the KJV has it. Uh, yeah, it's pelak. It's pelak. So the, the, the word, this is what I want to focus on, is the word serve. Because in the original language, this word is pelak. Which, this particular word is used only in reference to divine service. Meaning when you're worshiping God, or you're, you know, worshiping false gods. But either way, it's some sort of worship. It's not like, you know, any kind of mundane service. It is divine service. And so when Daniel is seeing this vision, this son of man that rides on the clouds, which by the way, we'll look at only Yahweh does that, but he's riding on the clouds. He receives all dominion, all authority, all glory that people should basically worship him. Now you have a real problem if you don't believe in the Trinity. And if you, if you don't have a way to reconcile that, and of course, through the Trinity, you can reconcile that because Jesus is God. But if you don't believe that Jesus is God, you have a real problem with this verse. Now, Daniel has a section written in Aramaic, and that's, I believe, from Daniel 2 to about Daniel 7, a little bit into Daniel 7, verse 28. And this word, every time it's used, it is used in the context of serving God or God's. And this is in the original language. Now, we're going to take a look at a very interesting article about this. This is from, uh, let's see, what is this from? This is called called Answering Islam. And this is by Keith Thompson. It's a very in-depth article on, on certain things, especially with Daniel. Because again, a lot of Muslim apologists will argue that, you know, where does it say, you know, Jesus is God? But this is obviously one place that you need to study. And we're looking at the divine implications of Daniel in in the verses that we just read. Daniel 7, verse 13 through 14. Let's take a look at what he says. The word is used in Ezra 7, verse 24, of servants of of this house of God. Divine service towards God. The word is used in Daniel 3, verse 12, of divine service to false gods. Now, this is the word I just mentioned, which is pelak, which is basically divine service. It's used in Daniel 3, verse 17, of divine service to the true God. It's used of Daniel's friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3, verse 18, with respect to a refusal to offer divine service to false gods. Remember when they were being told to bow down or else. In Daniel 3, 28, the word is used in reference to the divine service only God is to receive, where we are told that Daniel's friends, quote, yielded up their bodies rather than serve, that's Pelach, and worship any god except their own god. So serve in that context is being used only as the kind of serving that you would do for Yahweh. It's also used in chapter 6, verse 16, 
and verse 20 with respect to divine service to God. The word is also used in Daniel 7 verse 27 in reference to service to God, despite the fact that this text is often misunderstood as referring to service towards the saints of God. According to Jesenius's Hebrew lexicon, Pelach carries the following meanings. To labor, to serve, often in the Targums, specifically to serve or worship God. Notice how Jesenius affirms Daniel 7's use of the word to denotes worship to God. Of course, they quoted all these that we just looked at in a Targum, in a Hebrew, uh, actually a Hebrew lexicon. The Brown Driver Briggs le- Hebrew and English lexicon assigns to Pelach the following meaning. Pay reverence to service in parentheses, deity, and it attaches the latter meaning to Daniel 7.14's use of the word as well. In agreement is Stephen R. Miller, who is who in his commentary on Daniel notes that in every other instance where the verb Pelach, I'm guessing this is Pelach, I don't know how to read Hebrew, but Pelach, worship, serve, occurs in biblical Aramaic nine times. It has reference to service or worship, or, you know, worship or reference Worship or service rendered to a deity. A lot of different places cited. Remember, there's parts in Aramaic and Daniel, and those parts are are talking about this word basically applying to God. All of this shows that according to the Old Testament, Pelach is only to be given to God. Although the later 2nd century AD uninspired Targum literature, which are like these rabbinical commentaries, departed from this strict Old Testament usage by teaching humans received Pelach as well, this is not reflective of the Old Testament's orthodox usage or position. The later Septuagint translated the word Pelach found in Daniel 7.14 into the Greek work Latreo, as found in Ralph's edition and other Greek editions. This Greek word Latreo means divine worship due to God alone. Ibn Anwar, this is an, a Muslim apologist, which this whole article is, um, I guess, focused on responding to. But Ibn Anwar concedes this point in his article by quoting Anthony Buzzard, who affirms this meaning of Latreo. The fact that this choice was made provides more strong proof that the service worship Jesus receives in Daniel 7.14 is divine worship due to God. However, in spite of all this evidence, Ibn Anwar claims that the 2nd century AD Greek version of Daniel written by Theodosian which instead renders Daniel 17, 7.14's Pelach into the Greek word dolo is a better choice of translation. So Ibn Anwar says that a later rendition than the Septuagint has translated it better, but that's not really founded. This word dolo has a broader range of meaning and doesn't necessarily have to refer to divine service or worship to God, of course, because that, <laughs> that refutes your argument if you accept that though it very well can mean that. It's important to note that Theodosian's translation comes after the earlier Septuagint translation, and that the Septuagint's rendering of Daniel 7.14 was already being used as an argument for Jesus receiving Latreo by patristic writers before the non-Christian Jew Theodosian produced his Greek translation of Daniel. Thus, this chronology needs to be kept in mind. So what's the point? The point is that both the Old Testament and Aramaic and Hebrew and the Septuagint translation, which I forget when that was, but it's a couple centuries BC, attributed what was going on in Daniel's vision of the Son of Man as people worshiping him in the way that you worship God, only God. And so this is a real problem if you don't have a model to explain 
God is one being in different persons. Because what do you do with that? I mean, God says you can have no other gods besides me, and yet you have a vision of God, the Father, Ancient of Days, sitting on his throne. Someone comes before him, son of man, riding on the clouds, which is only what God does, and basically is given all dominion and receives worship, like the way God receives worship. So this is a very fascinating aspect of the title of Son of Man. When we compare this to other places, like Psalm 72, uh, other messianic psalms, this is, Give the king your justice, O Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give a deliverance to the children of needy, and crush the oppressor. May the fear, may they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. This is not about a human being. It's not about Solomon. It's not about anybody other than Jesus. It's a messianic psalm. And one clue that you have about that is that the word bow down here is the same word that's used in Exodus 20, Verses four through five, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness, anything that is in the heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the, to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the word for bow down in Psalm uh, 72, which is a messianic psalm, it's obviously talking about Jesus, the king, which again, you have now another element to this son of man deal. He's a king, he's a conquering king. He's a deity and he's a king. But messianic Psalm 72 was talking about the kingly aspect. But this kingly aspect is also receiving worship in the same way that... Daniel saw in, in his vision that in Exodus, God says, you're not going to bow down to other false gods. Obviously, you bow down only to me. I'm God. I'm the only God. And yet that same context and word is applied to the, the Messiah and the conquering king. So there is this interplay of, okay, there's a king, but this king is also a divine, there's a divine component here. Whatever this king is supposed to be, he's also divine and receives worship. Very, very interesting. Now, there's a challenge with this, and some say that, you know, the Son of Man here, of course, this is a Jewish, you know, Judaism argument where the Son of Man represents Israel. And the vision that Daniel saw is Israel or the people of God. It's not a personal Messiah. And, you know, they say, they cite uh, Daniel 7, verse 27, and it says, this, and, the kingdom, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions shall serve and obey him. 
And they say that obey him was added, and so this was really talking about the people of God, which is Israel. So they have a very different look on this. They have a nationalistic identity politics type of look. And so the response to this is pretty simple. First off, coming on the clouds is reserved for God alone. And we know that from several places of scripture in the Torah. And they are one, Psalm 104, verse 3. He, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Psalm 68, this is uh, verse 32 through 33. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Deuteronomy, a little earlier, verse 30, uh, chapter 33, verse 26. There's none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help through the skies in his majesty. So there's nobody that rides on the clouds other than God. Now, when Jesus, this is now, put that on the back burner, this is why in Matthew 24, verse 30, and well, actually, we're going to look at a couple places in Matthew, but Matthew 24, verse 30, the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus appropriates this to himself, then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He's applying this to himself. In Matthew 26, verse 64, Jesus says to the Pharisee, well, they asked him, I jure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. We looked at this in the last episode on the title of the Son of God, how there's this interplay here in this entire exchange where he's being interrogated, where they're asking him, are you the Christ? Isn't are you the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus says, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. So why did he tear his clothes and, and say, this is blasphemy? If son of God was just maybe a term for a prophet or, you know, son of man was Israel. The Pharisees themselves, these are the people who rejected Jesus and ended up founding Judaism, interpreted what Jesus said, that this, that he's appropriating a personal deity Messiah to himself, meaning that the Pharisees of Jesus's day certainly didn't interpret Daniel 7 and the vision of Daniel 7 as, oh, it's about Israel and the people of God and yada, yada, yada. Do you see my point? So the Pharisees themselves understood that the Messiah was a, was a divine figure and that Jesus was appropriating himself. He's saying, I'm that person. I'm the son of man that rides on the clouds. Of course, only God rides on the clouds. So there was this divine aspect of the Messiah. And so blasphemy, they thought it was blasphemy. They accused him of blasphemy. Why? Because he's making himself equal to God. Because there is a divine component to the son of man. Do you see how all of this ties together? It's, it's just so fascinating. Now, earlier in Daniel 7, verse 13, remember the challenge is, oh, this is about Israel. It's about, you know, uh, the people of God. Well, in the verses we just read, in verse 13 through 14, you have personal pronouns. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So 
he, there is a person that all of this is being given to, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. This is personal pronouns and per, it's, it's talking about a person. It's not talking about the Zionist interpretation, which is that all the nations of the earth will serve the Jews or the Zionist state of Israel. It's talking about a person. It's personal pronouns going on here. So all these things together, of course, we know that the Septuagint, which was translated, you know, like two, 300 BC, also have the word him added. They have the personal pronoun. So the translators back then thought that this was talking about a person, not a nation, wasn't a metaphor for the people of God. It's about a person that the people of God will worship. So the Pharisees and the Septuagint, which are long time ago, before Judaism was ever really officially a religion, interpreted this verse about a person who was divine. You see the problem with thinking that this is about Israel and it's about, you know, the nation of Israel? Of course, there are times in the Old Testament where Israel is a person. It's, it's talked about as a person, but this is not one of them. This is about the Messiah. And we rule with Christ, but Christ is on the throne. We, we're conquerors through Christ. So this is not a new idea. The, the things that are talked about in this vision are, are not a new idea. Like when it says in Daniel 7, verse 27, the kingdom and the dominion, the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions of the earth shall serve and obey him. This is touching back on earlier in Daniel, in verse 13 through 14, where he's talking about the son of man. So if you're reading this out of context, yeah, you might be able to twist it into saying, well, this is actually talking about you know, the, the saints and the serve and obey him was added. So it's really just talking about the people of God, but you're taking it out of context. You have to read the whole context. What's happening? Well, the son of man is given dominion. We're conquerors through Christ. We are inheritors through Christ. We, we get the crown through him. And so there's this, you know, we're brothers with Christ. Of course, he's the firstborn and all the things we looked at in the previous episode. So in context, it means that Christ is ruling, he's the Messiah, and we are conquerors through him as the people of the Messiah. That's what it's saying. And of course, this is an Old Testament picture that you need the New Testament to understand fully, because the New Testament is all about this stuff. But even in the Old Testament, you can see these pictures of a conquering messianic figure. Now, I want to go back to this article really quick and, and prove that this is about, a, a mess, it's a messianic verse. It's not talking about the nation of Israel. And this is, again, this, the article is called Answering Islam and is about Daniel 7, verse 13 through 14. A messianic prophecy. We know that this text is messianic in nature for various reasons. With respect to exegetical evidence, the description of this son of man closely correlates with older, with other Old Testament descriptions about the awaited Davidic Messiah and what he would do. That's in Ezekiel and Isaiah, Psalm 89, Psalm 110. Moreover, in the surrounding context of Daniel, namely verse 9, 24 to 26, a distinctive second temple messianic figure is given the title Messiah in the Hebrew, demonstrating that the Messiah is clearly in view. So yeah, if you've read Daniel 9, you know that Daniel 70 weeks prophecy about the Messiah. Obviously, this is 
in view with what Daniel is doing. With respect to the New Testament evidence, Matthew 26, verse 64, which we looked at with the high priest tearing his robes, Mark 14, 62, Luke 22, verse 67 through 70, which will be discussed below, also affirm the Son of Man of Daniel is the awaited Messiah. In the mid-first century extra-biblical Jewish apocryphal work, First Enoch, this is uh, chapter 48, verse 2, references made to the Son of Man and the head Ancient of Days, demonstrating that Daniel 7, verse 13 through 14, was clearly being drawn from. In Enoch 1, or 1 Enoch, 48 verse 10, this son of man is identified as his anointed, which is a messianic title. Therefore, first Enoch shows that there was a strand of early non-Christian Jewish belief maintaining that the Danielic son of man was the Messiah. So it wasn't taught even within apocryphal work, Jewish apocryphal work, they were affirming this idea. Moreover, in his commentary on Daniel, Alan R. Millard notes that the ancient Jews would assign to the awaited Messiah the title, He of the Clouds clearly showing that they believed the Son of Man who is said to come on the clouds of heaven was the Messiah. Millard also argues that the maintenance of this view in Judaism, despite its adoption by the Christians, suggests it had ancient and authoritative status. Of course, there's more here if you can read. This is a pretty lengthy and well-documented article, but the point is pretty clear. Look, the idea that this is talking about Israel somehow, somehow, like the people of Israel, is really trying to hide the truth of Jesus. As usual, people who reject Christ try to erase him from the scriptures, but you really can't do that because the scriptures testify of Jesus. And so ultimately the Son of Man is a conquering king, a Messiah, a divine figure all wrapped up into one. And we looked at Matthew 26, verse 63 through 64, where he's accused of blasphemy for basically identifying himself with this son of man. But in that interchange, you also have the son of man is the son of God, who is also God, because he's accused of blasphemy. Do you see how all of these things intersect, even in that one interchange? Where the, where the chief priest says, look, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, meaning you're the anointed Messiah, the son of God. So the son of God equals the Messiah. We looked at a whole episode what the Son of Son of God is and how it proves Jesus' divinity, not disproves it, like a lot of people think. But in that same interchange, how Jesus responds is with the Son of Man. So you have Son of Man, Son of God, and Christ, Messiah, all in one little interchange to, to show you this profoundly complex identity. Very, very fascinating. So it's obvious that the Son of Man is not talking about a nation in Daniel. It's talking about a person. We also know in Acts verse or chapter 7, verse 56, when Stephen is stoned, he says, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So he's, he, now this is after Jesus' ascension, which is very important because in my end time series, I talk about, this is one very important thing that people forget. Jesus ascended and he fulfilled the vision in Daniel 7 after his ascension. He's already king right now. He's already been given dominion. He, he was crucified, he was resurrected, and he ascended into glory. And Stephen, when he was stoned in 34 AD, a couple years after, what does he see? He sees the Son of Man, meaning he sees that fulfillment of Daniel's vision. 
Do you see the point? He sees what Daniel saw fulfilled. He's the son of man at the right hand of power. Very, very interesting stuff. But then you have also this little exchange with the son of David, which I want to look at, which is in Matthew 22, verse 45. We looked at this another time, another episode, but Jesus says, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So, you know, he this is whose son is the Christ, and this is a whole interchange of Matthew 22, where the Pharisees were gathered, and basically Jesus kind of stumps them as usual, and he says, who do you think, uh, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they say, of course, well, it's the son of David. And he says, well, how can... How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is Psalm 110. And they were stumped. They couldn't answer, well, how, yeah, how, how does David call him Lord if he's just his son, if he's just his physical progeny, if he's just having one nature, meaning human nature, how could David call him Lord? So there's this interesting duality there that Jesus is, is pointing to, And they just don't get it because they're focused on the flesh. Because the son of David, the son of man, there's human aspects, but there's also divine aspects. This is the thing. This is the great mystery being revealed in the Gospels, in the New Testament, in the Incarnation, that God became flesh. And it's like, wow, how how is that even possible? And yet, nothing is impossible for God. And this is the mystery But people were too focused on the flesh, and that's why they still stumble over that today. The Pharisees and Judaism today is really not much different. Still the same issues. But a couple other examples, we're just going to go through these lightning fast, of deity in the Son of Man. So we're going to look at John. This is John 5, verse 27. He was given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. The Son of Man has authority to give judgment. Later in John, this is chapter 6, verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Again, complex identity. Son of Man gives you the the food that endures for eternal life. So there's a, there's an element of propitiation there, which is very interesting. Because how do you eat? How do you partake in the Son of Man? Well, you have faith in His sacrifice, and that's that's allotted to you, and you are propitiated. But also, for on Him God God the Father set His seal. So He's also the Anointed One. He's the Chosen One. He's the Christ. So very very interesting. All again, an all in one kind of title. I want you to compare it a little later in John. This is in uh, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So earlier in John, what did he say? That the Son of Man will give you the bread that endures for eternal life. A few verses later, what did he say? He says, I am the bread of life. I'm the living bread. What's the bread of life? Well, it's my flesh. It's the one I'm going to give up for the life of the world. I'm the propitiation. The Son of Man is the one who gives you the bread of life. Well, what's the bread of life? The bread of life is his body. It's the propitiation that you access through faith. So again, complex identity, but yet you have divine and humble servant and propitiation all interwoven in a lot of these verses. It's a lot of times it's all, all of them are present in some way. 
Later in John, verse 61, same chapter, chapter 6, the words of eternal life. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Again, claim to preexistence and deity. He's referring to himself as the Son of Man and ascending to where he was before. He was there before. He wasn't created. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. So the Son of Man in this context now is used again as a preexistent divine figure. He that us that was in heaven. Nobody's ascended to heaven, right? Other than Jesus. So he's ascending to where he was before. Matthew 12, verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, who other than God can say that? But yet now you have the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So how does that work? Well, it works because Jesus is the creator. He's the God who created everything. And God exists as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But the Son was the one who was creating. The Father was creating through the Son with the Holy Spirit. How does that work in our third-person or three-dimensional view? I don't know. It's a mystery. Nobody knows. But that's the point. He's God. He's supposed to marvel at it. But he's Lord of the Sabbath. So Son of Man, divine component. Matthew 24, verse 31, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. And he, in this case, is the Son of Man. This is in verse 30. So again, Son of Man is returning, divine conquering king, and he sends out the angels. He has authority. Matthew 9, verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So Son of Man has the ability to heal, to forgive sins. He has authority. Who has authority to forgive sins and to heal and to bring life other than God? Again, you have a real problem if you reject the Trinity because the Son of Man especially testifies to a divine, kingly, godly person, which is the incarnation. It's You have the humble servant, the propitiation, and the one who has the authority over all things. All of that is in Jesus' identity. And it's throughout, the, it's throughout the Gospels. Now in Revelation 1, last one here, this is... Uh, Verse 12 through 14. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. This is John's vision now. Clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fires. This is a vision of Jesus that he has, because Jesus was just speaking. Now later in, in a couple verses later, what does he say? Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. So obviously this is not the father talking. And yet he says the same thing that Yahweh says in the Old Testament. I am the first and the last. This is a claim to Godhood. He's saying, I am the God of the Old Testament. I am God. Uh, but I'm also the one who died. Do you see the profound truth here? that this is showing this, this multi-personal nature of God, that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Son, who is also God, is the one who died, who became flesh. It's also fascinating. And 
Again, compare it to all the times in the Old Testament when, when Yahweh says, I'm the first and the last. This is a claim to Godhood. And anybody who says that Jesus doesn't say that he's God explicitly, he says and makes uh, uh, references to himself as God many times. But this is probably one of the most explicit in the first chapter of Revelation. So, a couple final thoughts. You know, in John 3, this is a good one to keep in memory. John 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This one I was just talking about. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So you have all three in this in this little interchange that he's speaking. John 3, verse 13 through 15, you have everything you need to know about the Son of Man. No one has ascended into heaven except the Son of Man and who descended from heaven. So you have a divine nature, divine quality. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son be lifted up. He's a humble servant. He's getting crucified. He's a human being. He has to be a human being in order to be crucified. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's your propitiation. Your legal standing with God is being attributed to you and propitiated to you because of Christ's sacrifice. All three are in these couple verses. So the Son of Man is a complex title that sums up Jesus' life and work. It's talking about his lowly, humble human nature, humanity, It's talking about his propitiation for sins through his sacrifice, through his atoning work. And it's also revealing his divine nature as God, as the second person of the triune God, which is just so fascinating. Now, Jesus uses this title the most. Remember, we we said he uses it about 80 times because it affirms all of these things about who he is. It affirms his humanity and his divinity. It affirms his function as savior and also as propitiation. It identifies him. It's such a complex title, and yet it's a very simple title, son of man. But what it means is really, really profound. It's an amazing term. It affirms the incarnation for Christianity, and it proves once again that Jesus is God. So I hope you've learned something today. I hope this has been edifying to you. Remember that Jesus is God. And very much so, the Bible teaches it over and over again. If you haven't accepted that, then I invite you to meditate on today's words, on some previous episodes, look at what Jesus has said about himself, look what others have written about him. The Bible teaches that Jesus is God, and it reveals that God, as the second person of the the triune God, took on flesh for our sake, so that he would be lifted up as the serpent, be crucified, and so that all of us who believe in that perfect work could be saved. And he will return as the conquering king, as the son of man, who has been given dominion over all things and rule forevermore. And that's a profound thought that we have such a beautiful and amazing God who is lowly in heart, humble in heart, and yet he is the creator of the universe. Hope hope it's been edifying for you today and take care, take it easy. Cling close to Christ in these crazy times, and we'll see you next time. Hey, thanks for being here. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you want in-depth Bible studies, free resources, encouragement, 
Or if you just want to get in touch with me, check out danceoflife.com. Until next time, God bless.